Aloha, this is Patrick Wardle from the Objective-C Foundation, and today we are on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 362 for February 5th, 2024. I honestly don't follow this, but it, I ran across this rather fortuitously and uh, this Friday, February 10th, starts the Chinese New Year. And as you may be aware, they kind of associate a zodiac symbol, a Chinese zodiac symbol, with each calendar year. And guess what the zodiac symbol will be for 2024? Yes, I'm sure you can now guess it will be the Year of the Dragon. So this is actually the first dragon year since I started my company. I mean, they do this, it rotates every 12 years. So it just turns out that we've never had a year of the dragon since I wrote my book and of course started the podcast and everything else. So, you know, Hey, let's hope this is an auspicious conjunction. I really love the idea of this actually, because I want to do a lot this year to expand my audience. And so what a perfect year to be doing that <laughs> year of the dragon. So anyway, thank you to everybody who filled out the listener survey. I very, very much appreciate your feedback. I've been reading through some of them, and there's there's already some great comments. I hate, will take a while for me to go through all of them, uh, but I very much appreciate that. And I absolutely will go through each and every response. So thank you to everybody who responded. By the time this episode airs, I should have already chosen and notified all 10 lucky winners. So once I get your shipping address, I will send that off to my publisher and give it a few weeks. It may, it may take a while for that book to get to you, but never fear, it will be sent. Okay, so today we have a great interview. I've been sitting on this one for quite a while. Uh, we actually recorded this several months ago, but because I kind of took December off and I had so many interviews kind of backed up, it's taken me a while for me to bubble this one up to the top. Uh, but it is finally here, and it's a great interview. Uh, we'll be talking today with Patrick Wardle, who is a Mac security guru from way back. I interviewed him several years ago on this show, but it's been way too long. And uh, I was actually taking a family trip to Hawaii, and I knew that that's where he lived. So I, I reached out to him uh, last summer, yet summer before, and uh, turns out he was there. So I got on Maui, and we got to meet up and have lunch. That was a lot of fun. I rarely actually get to meet my interview guests in person, so I always try to take advantage of that when I can. And now Patrick is back on the show, and I wanted to pick his brain on the subject uh, for which he is an expert. And so today we're going to be talking about security for Apple products, particularly Macintoshes. Now, if you're a Windows PC user, that's fine, because a lot of what we talk about today will actually be generally applicable to all computers. So uh, even though we focus on Apple, there's still a lot here that will apply to Windows as well. So real quick, before we get to the interview, uh, by way of glossary, uh, we throw around a few terms. Uh, Patrick will talk about XProtect and MRT. That is the malware removal tool that Apple builds into its Apple products. Apple really doesn't talk a lot about the security features that are built into macOS. So that's another reason I kind of wanted to talk to Patrick today uh, to kind of dig into some of that. But those are some of the proprietary names of, of the processes and and tools that are built into Mac OS that are there to help protect you. He also talks about OBTS, and <laughs> that's because it's a, it's a lot more to say objective by the sea. That is the name of Patrick's tech conference that he does on Apple security, which is a takeoff of the name of his company, which is objective C S E E the name of his company and website. And uh, that is in turn a takeoff on objective C the letter C, which is Apple's kind of older now proprietary programming language. 
So anyway, when he rattles off OBTS, that's what he's talking about. All right, it's plenty long interview, so let's not waste any more time. And let's talk to Patrick Wardle about Apple security. Patrick Wardle is the founder of the Objective C Foundation, having worked at both NASA and the NSA, as well as presented at countless security conferences. Patrick is passionate about all things related to macOS security, writing books on macOS malware, and releasing free open source security tools to protect Mac users. Welcome back, Patrick. Thank you, Kerry. Stoked to be back on the show. <laughs> well, it's been too long. We haven't had you on the show. I had to go back and look. It's been many years, but way too long since you've been on the show, Patrick. And uh, since the last time you were on the show, you've, you've done a lot of stuff. Like, I don't think at that point you had even, uh, the last time you were on the show, you had started Objective-C by the sea yet. So kind of catch us up. Give us a little overview of the stuff you've been up to since then with Objective-C, Objective by the sea, the book, and all the other stuff you've been up to. Yeah, thanks. So as you said, been busy. I'm clearly like super passionate about all things related to macOS security, but also ways where I can work together with the community. So since the last time we've talked, uh, we converted uh, Objective-C over to a 501c3 nonprofit, which is awesome. That really mm-hmm. aligned clearly with our mission and, and goal. And, you know, some of the other things you mentioned that I'll briefly chat about as well, um, the Objective by the Sea conference. It's the world's only macOS and iOS security conference. We hold it every year and we alternate between U.S. and uh, Europe. And when it's in U.S., we do it the lovely island of, of mm-hmm. Maui in Hawaii. And then in Europe, we usually do it somewhere uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea because, you know, it's got to live up to the name Objective by the Sea. <laughs> sure. Got to lock yourself so, in there. Yeah, exactly. But I like that because, you know, when we started, we didn't know like, hey, is this going to like be a good idea? We, we think it is. And when I say we, it's really me and my colleague, Andrea or Andy, who her and I run the Objective-C Foundation. So it's the two of us putting on this uh, event, which is good because, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it also gives us a lot of autonomy. We can make the decisions, mm. choose where to host it, uh, all those things. Um, and so it's really grown into a can't miss the cybersecurity events. Uh, we just had the last one in Spain in October, uh, version 6.0. So we've already done it uh, a total of, of six times. And each year it grows bigger. Uh, we're lucky enough to attract you know the world's top researchers from Google, from Microsoft, uh, CrowdStrike, uh, you know, really coming and talking about uh, all sorts of really interesting cybersecurity topics all in the context of Apple security. Uh, so things like malware analysis, exploits, tool development, uh, macOS or iOS internals, really neat. And, you know, especially this year, we've also really grown the student scholarship program. So this is something I'm really excited about. And this is something we do through the nonprofit where we select uh, students. And for the ones who win the, the scholarship, we, we provide uh, funding. We cover their, their flights, their hotels, uh, the ability to take the three-day trainings that precede the conference and then come to the conference as well. And this is a really great opportunity for kind of the next generation of uh, cybersecurity researchers to get exposed to what we do, the conference, and and the training. Um, and it's great. You know, I think this year we had almost 200 students apply. We were oh, wow. able to pick uh, 10, which I think is still pretty neat. Uh, we partnered with Google. Google was kind of the main sponsor for the um for the student scholarship program this year. So thanks to them. And it's great too, because not only can we expose them to that, we can also, you know, encourage diversity in the, 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 the students sure, yeah. select or who come to, to the event. And for many of them, it's their first uh, cybersecurity conference. And mm. it's just amazing to see 
their light, their eyes light up yeah. and, you know, they're able to talk to the speakers and really connect. And a lot of the companies come and recruit at these events. Oh, sure. So we're really kind of helping with the pipeline problem is that it's, yeah. it's kind of deemed where, hey, we're now bringing in uh, diverse, talented next generation students and then um, a lot of them can connect with these companies so conference is awesome we do really cool trainings cool t topics have a lot of students so that's been really uh, something that i've poured my uh, heart and soul into it but the dividends have been amazing uh, the other thing that takes up a lot of my time, but again, that I love is is writing. So since the last time we talked, I published my first book with yeah. uh, No Starch Press. It's volume one. The series is called The Art of Mac Malware. And volume one is on analyzing Mac malware. And the way I like to explain it to people is drawing parallels to biological viruses. So we recently had a, a pandemic and you can imagine when... Uh, a new virus breaks onto the scene or a new sickness is impacting people around the world, virologists first get a sample of that. And then what do they do? Well, they bring it into their lab and they're trying to answer questions like, how does this spread, right? How does this infect people? And then once someone is infected, how does it impact them, right? Is it, uh, you know, causing them to bleed out of their eyes or <laughs> is it something that's causing, uh, you know, lung inflammation right, or, right. you know, something that can, can lead to death? These are very important questions. And then, you know, also how does it spread from one person to the next? Right. And then finally, really, once they have an understanding, how can they develop a vaccine to either inoculate currently infected people or to prevent people from uh, getting infected? So we do exactly the same thing when studying computer viruses. We want to answer the questions of, hey, how does this malicious code get from one computer to the next? How does it spread? And then once it's on that computer, what does it do? Is it trying to steal your passwords? Is it going to ransom your files? All those things. And then ultimately, once we have a deep understanding of this, we can develop kind of a, a digital vaccine, a protection mechanism where th that might be a patch, updating a security tool, something that, you know, even if the virus comes along, we can essentially thwart it or prevent it with that knowledge. Uh, and so I like that analogy because it, it, it resonates really well with people. And also, this is how I understand it right. in my head. And the issue was there really wasn't a book on this specifically focusing on viruses or malware targeting Macs. And so I've been doing a lot of malware analysis for a long time. And so I decided to write the book that I wish I had when I started right. uh, Mac malware analysis. And so I partnered with No Starch no Star Press. They're an awesome publisher. And one of the ways they're yes, awesome they is they agreed to uh, – they agreed – uh, allowed me to publish it uh, on my website 100% free. Oh, so wow. yeah, there is a, a, a hard copy that you can buy and you know all royalties from that go back into the Objective-C Foundation. That's kind of cool. But you know if you're a student or you know maybe you just don't have the budget, uh, every chapter which has been professionally edited and laid out by No Stars Press is available on uh, taomm.org. So the art of math. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's awesome that they were super supportive of that. Yeah. Um, and so really, again, can't say enough about how great the publisher is. And, you know, the book's really well received, uh, so much so that I decided to write uh, a second volume, which I am currently writing. I'll actually continue on right after we record this <laughs> podcast. And this is kind of part two, and it talks about detection of the viruses in the first place. So if we go back to our analogy with biological viruses, well, step one is like, how do you detect that there's a new virus in the wild anyways at, you know, at the start so that then you can analyze that? So this book is, you know, how we do this as uh, digital virologists, 
how we can write programs that can heuristically detect malware based on their behaviors. And again, going back to the same analogy, when COVID came along, we didn't know what it was, but we knew something was wrong. People were essentially getting sick. And so you can apply that same logic to computers where, you know, if you look for essentially anomalies, one great example would be ransomware, right? It's going to lock and encrypt your files. That's not something that normally happens when you're using (laughs) your computer. So instead of saying, hey, I'm going to look for this specific strain of ransomware, if you look for the rapid uh, creation of encrypted files by an untrusted process, well, now you kind of have a generic way to detect uh, ransomware, even if it's a brand new specimen. Because as soon as it starts locking your files, you can say, hey, wait a minute, this is strange. You can stop it in its tracks. So the second book is approaches for that, again, focusing on protecting Macs uh, and how to detect viruses in the first place. So the idea is it's really this one-two combo where once you know what the malware looks like, you then know how to detect it. And then once you're detecting it and finding new samples, you can use the knowledge gained in the first book to analyze it. Uh, so again, really kind of a, a neat series. That second book is also going to be published by No Starch Press, uh, hopefully sometime in the uh, uh, in 2024. Uh, I'm, I'm getting to the end of writing the chapter. <laughs> it's, it's always a marathon, uh, mm. but it's it's been great. So those are kind of the main things. A bit of a long-winded answer to what I've been up to, but the conference, well, busy. the books, and uh, the tools. Yeah, busy. Busy is good. Keeps me out of trouble, and you know, it's a great way to connect to the community, provide educational content, and really empower the next generation because. We need to swell the ranks, right? Mac Mauer is becoming ever more prevalent. The adversaries are becoming ever more sophisticated. So uh, we need to kind of keep lockstep in terms of our knowledge, our expertise, and our numbers. Well, we're going to dig into all that today. So let's get this question out of the way. You've been focused. You're focused on macOS malware, but I mean the the, the classic question is: is which is more secure, you know, Macs or PC? So I, I got to ask, what is your take on that, and how do how do they kind of compare? And I know part of the equation always has been that, you know, well, nobody targets Macs because there's many more PCs. You got, you know, you go where the, the most of the people are. So it was kind of security by obscurity. But, you know, what it, if you really compare the two side by side, in your take, which, which is more secure out of the box, a Mac or a PC? You know, that's a very nuanced question. And my opinion, though, I would say they are fairly close. I would say, you know, they should be discussed almost equally because hmm. – at the end of the day, they are both operating systems that have vulnerabilities and issues that malware can slip in. And so there's kind of pros and cons to each in terms of security. So for example, Macs usually come with less running services or less exposed services. Mm. Uh, and so there's maybe a smaller uh, attack surface. Right. Windows, on the other hand, is more about mm, supporting legacy protocols and you know working right, in... Right enterprise environments, being able to open a file from 1985. So it kind of has some legacy debt and maybe some additional services. The problem is, though, a lot of times Mac users are somewhat overconfident Mm. about the security of the system. And this is largely because Apple does an incredible incredible job at at marketing, coupled with also the fact that traditionally Macs weren't targeted as as often as, as Windows. So there's kind of this maybe overconfidence or even maybe naivety of the fact that, hey, my Mac doesn't get malware. And the problem with that is even if your Mac is pretty secure, if you have that mindset, well, you're not going to be as careful as perhaps you should be. You might be randomly downloading things from the internet from shady sites, uh, whereas on Windows, you would never do that. On Mac, you might be like, ah, 
you know, Apple's got my back. And even if they generally do, there's cases where that's not necessarily true. And so, you know, I'm a big Mac fan. All my computers are Macs. Uh, So I definitely believe in, you know, the security of them to some extent. But, and we'll probably talk about this a little more. A lot of the attacks do involve user interaction, kind of social engineering type stuff. Mm -hmm. And so in some senses, that's disconnected or decoupled from the security of the the operating system right but you know out of the box you know if i had you know you put a gun to my head i'd probably say mac uh you know apple has done a pretty good job largely reducing the attack surface but also controlling what can be run on your mac Uh, for example software now has to be notarized which means that apple has to basically give it their stamp of approval now that's great from a security point of view but also allows apple to be this arbiter this gatekeeper of what can be run on your mac which I don't know if I really like that. You know, it's like, right. hey, I paid two thousand dollars for my MacBook, and like, yeah, you can go in and turn off all these settings, but you know, the fact that like Cupertino is like in control for, um, uh, you know, uh, essentially, um, yeah, I don't know if that sits well with me. But the benefit of, of that is there's uh, the security of the system is is generally enhanced. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm an engineer too. And so I, I bristle at some of these things as well and being limited on what I can do with the machines. And, you know, so I've got Linux boxes where I could do more things that, than, than I can maybe on a Mac just out of the box. And I know how to turn off these switches if I want to do it. But, I, you know, for me, especially with this audience, it's like, you know, hitting the easy button. What is going to be best for 99% of the populace that don't really care about those things? They're surfing the web. They're checking their email. Maybe they're playing a couple games that they got from the App Store. So for me, you know, certainly as I support some of these people, it's it's... I, I like the out of the box experience to be as simple and as straightforward as possible. And and for most people, I don't think they hit those guardrails too often, you know, for the, for most people. Yeah. So another question that gets asked all the time, and I get asked all the time, so I got to ask you, are modern antivirus apps effective? Are they necessary? I, I know things have changed. I mean, the, the whole Mac malware things, for instance, malware, there's so many strains out there now. In the old days, antivirus was recognizing the ones we knew about, and that we're way past that now. <laughs> like you're talking about going to heuristics because they change all the time. You can't just look for ones that you know about. You've got to be able to recognize new ones because there's so many new ones. So, you know, what do you think about antivirus apps today? And what about some of these things really kind of go, maybe they're looking for differentiation. So they're trying to monitor your downloads and, and look at your web traffic. What do you think about antivirus software today? How necessary is it for most people? That's a great question. I'm going to answer it a little more broadly. I'm going to start Mm -hmm. by saying, I think defense in depth is a foundational concept in securing your system. Um, And so that being said, I don't think you should ever just say, hey, what's built into the operating system is, is good enough. And, you know, Apple has made significant steps over the last few years in terms of increasing the built-in or baked-in security of macOS. And that's great. Kudos to them. Some downsides to that. We're now clicking through a lot more prompts, reminding me of, like, the Vista days. Um, (laughs) But is what it is. You know, and so, for example, macOS now ships with built-in uh, antivirus, essentially, X-Protect, MRT. Um, you know, Apple doesn't really talk a lot about that, but macOS is kind of scanning for known malware, and if one shows up on your system, it will pick that up. That having been said, I really think it's important to use third-party security products. And I'm not just saying that as someone who creates third-party <laughs> security products, because mine are all free and open source. Right. I don't have much of a, an agenda here. Right. But... You know, one of the reasons I started writing these tools was because I wanted an additional layer of security on my Mac. And because I understood malware and can write code decently, I was like, okay, I have the ability to write uh, these tools. And then, you know, sharing is caring. Let's share them with the community. 
This is a really good topic to talk about, though, because as I think is the case with many things, there's some great contenders of security software that I think does the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many others that, you know, might open up your box to even more threats or, you know, cost an arm and a leg, which aren't mm-hmm. really doing that. And we see that happening a lot, especially with the more traditional antivirus companies, because, you know, if you think about it, Windows still was... I would say 80% of the market share. I mean, it might be a little less more, but it's like a significant majority, let's just say. And so what this means is any company is going to spend a significant amount of their resources developing their Windows products. So when sales and marketing comes along and says, hey, we should you know, create a Mac product because, hey, 20% of our customers using Macs now, that number is increasing. Hey, we should have something. You know, like that's great. But a lot of times what they do is they just port over their Windows uh, mm-hmm. AV products or security tools. And even though conceptually things might be the same between Mac and Windows, right? Like malware is going to persist, install itself uh, on Windows in one way. On Mac, it's going to be totally different. So you really have to have an innate knowledge of the differences of Mac OS, which means you can't simply just port over your AV. I mean, you can if you're just looking for known malware using static signatures. But if you really want to create a comprehensive security product that's actually going to protect the user, especially from new threats, you're going to have to invest a decent amount of time and, and effort. And there's certain companies that, that do that, which is great. And then there's also companies who said, hey, we're developing Mac-specific capabilities. Those are my favorite because each day, every day, 100% of their time and resources are developing tools just for Mac OS. Now, that's not ideal when maybe you're in the enterprise and you have Windows and Mac uh, products because now you have to manage right, two right. separate products. Sure. But for end users, if you just have a Mac, uh, you know, companies that are developing just for Mac are probably going to be uh, pretty solid. The other thing I look for too, though, is the companies that are publishing neat research on Mac OS threats. Hmm. Um, so those are the ones to me that says, okay, they have dedicated teams. Uh, they are really taking this Mac stuff seriously. And they're, you know, AV tools aren't just some um, port from Windows to, you know, appease the marketing uh, department. So, you know, <laughs> right. do your research. I do think having these additional security tools are, are needed because, you know, even though Apple is moving in a really great direction, there's always going to be flaws or loopholes in their their security mechanisms that hackers can and have exploited or bypassed. And that is when a third-party security tool can kind of come to the rescue or even add additional layer of security that Apple isn't really willing to add because it might add some more friction to the user experience. All right. Now, it sounds like you're carefully avoiding naming any particular companies or any particular products, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And feel free to beg off because I understand the point of view, but are there any particular ones that any of these companies you've kind of tangentially mentioned uh, or alluded to that you would recommend? So which which so ones gonna, do you I'm like? Gonna, which ones are Mac yeah, focused? Yeah. I'm going to focus on the positive. We're not going to diss anyone here. Uh, we okay. save that for Apple. <laughs> but no, like I'm a fan of of Malwarebytes. I think they, if you're looking for a traditional AV product, they provide like a free, yep. you know, one to scan your system. And they're a company that has had a great relationship for Apple for a really long time. Mm. Uh, you know, I've heard stories, and I think this is, holds true that. You know, you take your Mac into the Genius Bar and, you know, if it's like infected with something, it's like they have a copy of Malwarebytes mm. that they, they run and, and scan. And, and Malwarebytes also, though, they, they're one of the companies that's like publishing interesting research about macOS threats. Um, I have a lot of good friends that work there. Um, you know, a lot of them are giving talks at uh, conferences and really interesting stuff. So I think they have a great team and a great product, even though they develop for Windows as well. I think their Mac AV product is, is solid. So... When people are like, hey, I think I have adware on my system or some malware, I'm like, 
start with malware bytes. Um, so that's good. In the context of the enterprise, I think CrowdStrike does a pretty good job mm. too. They have, again, a Windows and a Mac product, but they do seem to spend a lot of time and effort on analyzing Mac threats and developing some really interesting Mac capabilities. Um, and so, again, using the quality of the research as a metric for their products, which I think holds up pretty well, um, they do a really good job. I would be amiss if I didn't mention Jamf as well. Uh, a little biased, Jamf uh, acquired uh, a company I helped found, and we were developing heuristic-based Mac products for for the enterprise. And you know, Jamf took that product and you know ran with that and made something really neat. But again, they're one of the companies that's specific to macOS. So I mentioned I really like that, and you know, I know. Uh, a lot of the code that's running is, uh, you know, based on a lot of really great real world experience and has a lot of like good people behind it. And they're constantly publishing reports on new malware that they discovered, new exploits uh, that their product helped d- detect and, and thwart. So like, again, that's kind of a great metric of the quality uh, of, of the product. Well, let's plug a couple of years too. Uh, so I've used Lulu, I've used uh, BlockBlock. What are, what are some of the ones that you might recommend that for the average person, tools that you've created that are free, that you might recommend people look to install? Yeah, great. Let's chat about that. Uh, so thanks for the opportunity to also plug my tools because as I mentioned, they were really designed out of a need to provide either insight into what was going on into my computer. That's why you know Objective-C, the, the objective is to kind of see. That's uh, one of the reasons is also a play, of course, on Apple's uh, programming language. And so some of my favorites are, well, two you mentioned. So Lulu is a free open source firewall on macOS. And what I do when I design security tools, I look at the breadth of malware and all the distinct disparate specimens and say, what do they have in common? Or where are there a ton of overlaps, behaviorally speaking? And then what can we do to design a tool that monitors kind of that bottleneck? And my two favorites uh, behaviors to focus on are persistence and accessing Mm -hmm. the network. So let's talk about accessing Mm -hmm. the network first. So the vast, vast uh, majority of malware, regardless of how it gets onto your system, if that's a zero-day exploit, if that's... Uh, you know, a pirate app that is Trojanized that you really shouldn't be running. Uh, that's a fake updater that you were somewhat understandably tricked into downloading and running. We don't care, right? That could be a million different ways to get in. But once that malware gets onto your system, more than likely it's going to connect out to the internet, either to connect out to a command and control server for tasking. Right. Uh, it might exfiltrate your files. It might download another piece of malware. Basically, it's going to want to use the the network, regardless of the type of malware, who wrote it, where it came from. So what a firewall does, I'm sure most users know, especially since firewalls are in the title, (laughs) (laughs) firewalls might not stop dragons, but they are really good at preventing malware in the sense or detecting malware. Because what we can do is we can basically conceptually sit on on, on the network, and as new connections come, we can examine the responsible process and say, hey, is this something we trust? And very easily you can say, okay, hey, this is, you know, Safari. Uh, this is Apple's auto-updater. Uh, and on Mac, this is pretty easy because everything is code signed now. So you can mm-hmm. cryptographically verify who created something, which is mm-hmm. really, really nice because it helps you classify whether the process that is axing the network is authorized or unauthorized. And if it's unauthorized, maybe it's just brand new, you can just alert the user and say, hey, process XYZ is trying to talk to, uh, you know, 
endpoint ADC. Uh, you know, it's signed by this company or it's not signed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is the process hierarchy and all that information. And then the user can make a pretty educated uh, decision. But again, the idea is regardless of how the malware gets onto the system, if it accesses the network, which the majority do, a firewall, which in some senses malware agnostic, will alert the user that something new, something potentially unauthorized is accessing the network. So that gives it a very powerful uh, place. Well, one of the differences with this firewall in particular is it's most firewalls keep things out. Unsolicited requests from coming into your system. I don't know if there's a term for this, if it's a reverse firewall or, but it's like, this is like the calls coming from inside the house, right? This is, this is, this is the case where something's trying to get out instead of come in. That's not, that's not normally how firewalls work. That's a really good point, Kerry. I think the term would be an outbound or outgoing firewall. Yeah, but I don't know if there's a specific term. But yeah, that's a really good point because especially on Mac OS, there's very like limited ways things can come in, which is good. There's not a bunch of opening ports. So really things are going to come in, you know, via the browser, which you're probably going to be allowing anyways, just because you want to browse the web or your chat Mm -hmm. client. So Again, designing this firewall, the idea was not as much uh, about, you know, monitoring traffic per se, or even maybe privacy concerns. It's really like designed to detect malware. Um, And that's why it's like, I'm going to more focus on the outbound because the majority of ways malware gets into the system, an inbound firewall wouldn't really help. I mean, macOS has a built-in firewall that will block incoming connections. I think it's on by default now, which is good, but, you know, people are still getting infected. Um, So kind of having a a firewall that only is interested in outbound connections uh, is great. And Lulu also kind of takes this uh, maybe more hands-off approach in the sense that it's really, it's not doing like packet scanning. It's not like really tracking connections. It's really just looking at the initial connection that that goes out and and tying that to the responsible process and say, okay, is this a process I trust or, or right. not? And of course, users can create rules. You can configure Lulu to say, okay, you know, I'm okay with process A talking to endpoint B, but if an attacker somehow tries to, uh, you know, gets in and tries to use process A to talk to endpoint C, like right. we're going to alert on that, which is good because there's some built-in utilities like Curl, for example, which can, you know, download or upload something. And, you know, that's used legitimately by a lot of software. You probably don't want to blanket approve Curl because a lot of right. malware actually uses that. So, again, you might want to filter on where it's trying to talk to. So that's Lulu. Great tool. Free open source. You know, there's some great other commercial options that have maybe more bells and whistles. But I thought it's really important for there to be a free open source version for, you know, the average user who wants some security but maybe doesn't want to pay a lot. I get it, right? Like, sure. Inflation these days, things are expensive. So that's Lulu. The other tool I like to talk about is Block Block, and it takes the same kind of idea, but instead of monitoring network activity, it monitors for persistence. And persistence in the context of this discussion basically means how something installs itself so that when the operating system is rebooted, when the computer is restarted, it gets automatically re-executed. And just like most malware accesses the network, most malware is going to persist. Because if malware doesn't persist and you reboot the system, it's not going to get run again. Because when you reboot, everything gets killed. So malware is like, you know, I always want to be running. I always want to be connecting out or like collecting keystrokes or whatever it's doing. So the majority of malware persists. Uh, So again, this is kind of like a a funnel point where regardless of the type of malware, uh, if we're monitoring persistence, and there's not that many ways to persist on macOS, if we simply look for that, anytime anything persists, we just can alert the user and say, hey, just let you know, process A persisted. And if the user is installing a trusted signed piece of software, that's fine. They can just click allow. 
if they've just opened a shady website and all of a sudden something persists <laughs> in the background, big red flags. Right. Um, right, so right. again, it's somewhat malware agnostic, but focuses on an activity that the vast majority of malware seeks to achieve, whereas most legitimate software is not going to persist. I mean, some does, right? Like my tools persist because they always need to be running. Right. Um, but again, it's something that should rarely happen. So if you get a, a pop-up from Block Block basically saying, hey, something has persisted, you can take a close look and decide if it's something that you want to allow, or maybe it's unfortunately some malicious that slid into your system uh, surreptitiously. Well, that's a good segue to the next question, and that is all these security apps require privileged access to do their jobs, right? I mean, it's like hiring a security guard. They need to be able to access everything you're doing, even the maybe the shady stuff you're doing to protect you, right? That's part of their job. So, But this also means that you have to trust these apps not to abuse those permissions. So as a regular, and this is, I struggle with this advice myself because I get people asking me these questions. How do you know what security stuff you can trust? And you've created these tools. So how do you convince people or maybe maybe just assume that if the longest are coming to your site, they're already convinced. But how do you engender that trust? How do you assure people that, look, I'm okay, you can trust me so that I can help you with the things you can't trust, right? I mean, how do you make those decisions, especially as a consumer who maybe not have the technical backgrounds that we do? Yeah, Karen, that's a great question because we've actually seen, and we touched on this earlier, the fact that security tools can inadvertently increase the attack surface of uh, right. a system. Not only are they running at a privileged higher level where they need to be, but generally they're you know parsing a lot of complex data, maybe even before it hits the system or before it shows up to the user. So if there's any vulnerabilities there, it's like, okay, did you just open your, did you just reduce the attack, uh, the security of your Mac by installing this product? Right. So one, I love that users ask that because that awareness to me is a great step in the right direction. Mm. Sure. Unfortunately, the answer is a little harder. I don't think there's a perfect answer. So what I do is I kind of look for several things. And I think we do this in, in life in general, right? When we meet a new person, we're like, should we trust this person? Is this a friend? It's like we kind of look at, for example, their rapport in the community. And, you know, that's maybe a pretty good litmus test. And so with uh, tools, I think that's something that we can do as well, coupled with the fact I'm a big fan of open source software. So open source software basically means that the code for the product is widely available. It's kind of like going to a restaurant and when they serve you their secret cake or their cake, they also give you the recipe. And that allows you to like go home and make that yourself. And so- Or maybe the restaurants that have the big glass window like behind the bar where you can actually see them in the kitchen doing it, right? Exactly, exactly. That transparency I think is great. And you know, there's people that go back and forth and argue about open source more secure than closed source, blah, 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 security through obscurity. But at the end of the day, with open source software, you can look at it and you can see exactly what it's doing. Uh, And so from a security point of view, I think that's great because that also means that other people can look at it. And I get, you know, bug reports from users um, all the time, mostly not (laughs) security related, but they're like, hey, you know, you can do this better in code over here, or I encountered that. Because it's open source, they can submit suggestions, they can read it. It's, it's, It's great. And I think it also then fosters more trust because you're like, I don't have anything to hide. Not saying closed source software has something to hide, but you're like, you know what, like, this is this is me. It's like, you know, making yourself more vulnerable, which is a good thing. I think it makes us more relatable, makes us more trustworthy. So I'm a big fan of uh, open source. Side anecdote, which I think is kind of hilarious. Originally, some of my tools weren't open source. 
solely for the reason that I didn't want companies like stealing their algorithms and commercially, sure, right. um, you know, running away with them. Right. But Intellectual property. I gave a talk about this at Black Hat a few years ago. I actually caught a bunch of companies that had done that regardless. And the story about that is hilarious. I'll give you the short version. Uh, I had a bug in my code that was triggered when Apple updated something. And the companies who had reverse engineered my tools and re-implemented my code did it in such a verbatim manner that when <laughs> Apple's update triggered my bug, it also up it triggered a bug in their code. And that would be like you having a spelling mistake in a research paper and someone plagiarizing it and also plagiarizing the spelling mistake. And you're like, y'all, if you would have just like reworded this a little bit, I would have never known. So... At that point, I was already like, open source is great. Companies are going to steal my stuff anyways, apparently. So like, let's go full open source. And I'm really happy because um, I think it gives users a lot of trust because I'm like, hey, these are the tools I'm writing. Here's the secret sauce. Like anyone can peek in, make sure that one, they're written securely, but also they don't have like a back backdoor admin password. I'm not collecting any data. Like anybody can see that. And so... I'm a big fan of open source to answer the question, should I should I be trusted? But going back to the analogy of like meeting the person and their rapport in the community, I think this also applies to companies who have closed source software. You know, I'm not saying don't run closed source software, especially for commercial software for intellectual property reasons. They're somewhat understandably closed source. Yeah. So again, I kind of look at their track record and also their business model. You know, mm -hmm. there's this mm -hmm. quote that's like, if you're if the product is free, you're the product. Mm -hmm. And I actually hate that quote because, like, <laughs> I give away free right. stuff and I'm like, I'm not. But for commercial software, it's like, yeah, it's like there's yeah. a reason, like, Gmail is free and there's a reason <laughs> that Instagram is free. You know, right, it's right, like right. data. And so, you know, kind of apply those same approaches to, to that. And but also, you know, look at the company's uh, track record. If they're giving great talks at conferences, they are involved in great community activities, they have kind of a great track record of, of, of doing the right thing, detecting new threats. Like, okay, like generally speaking, those are a lot of green flags. I would trust them. I would go with them. But I like that users are, are, are asking that question because yeah. and unfortunately, there's a lot of snake oil out there oh, yeah. or even shady companies who are trying mm. to get you to install security products and then either charge you an arm and a leg without giving you a lot of protection or worse, you know, collecting data on their users for advertising, or both. you know, anything you can imagine <laughs> or, or both. Exactly. You alluded to this earlier, but I mean, even me as a technologist and somebody who's at least adjacent to the security realm, I, even I get tired with all the pop-ups. Like I, so, you know, for instance, oh, I, I run on, on a non-admin account. So whenever I do anything on my system that requires any kind of higher level access, I'm constantly having to enter my admin password, you know, Mac, has really gotten big on notifying you things. So this app now has a background task and it, it tells me that after every single upgrade, I am getting fatigued and I understand what's behind these things. Are we doing it right? I mean, should, can we find a better <laughs> balance? Cause you know, security and convenience rarely, you know, go together, right? They're usually at, at odds with each other, but it seems like we're kind of over rotating or we need to figure out a better way to do it. I'm really glad you brought this up, Carrie, because this is something I struggle with. One is someone who designs security tools that has to alert the users, but then also as a passionate Mac user who is like equally having this fatigue. And so recently, last summer, I gave a talk at Black Hat about how to develop tools that use some of Apple's new networking frameworks to detect malware. It's kind of the things that Lulu's built on. And Apple's done a great job now providing these frameworks to security vendors. And one of the neat things that they've done is Good. I'm actually glad, taking I'm glad that to out hear of the that. kernel. 
yeah, they've moved that out of the kernel. So now it's running in user mode, which for your users basically means that we can write security tools that can do their jobs effectively, but are running at a lower privilege level, which is wonderful. great. So kudos to Apple. The downside is, and I kind of asked Apple why, uh, because in my talk, I showed this commercial that Apple put out when Windows Vista came. And I don't know if you remember it, but it had like two actors and like the security guard and the whole point of the commercial, which was pretty hilarious and well done at the time, was that Windows, you had to click deny or allow for like everything. Like anytime you wanted to like open a file or like talk to someone and the Mac person is like, hey, what's going on? And the Windows person is like, am I allowed to talk to this person? And they click allow. And then like, it just went back and forth. And at the end, it was just like, oh my goodness, Windows Vista was a disaster. And a lot of people agreed. They're like way too many pop-ups in Vista. So the re reason I mentioned that is, for example, Lulu is a network provider. And so when you download and install it, the problem is all the teams at Apple who are responsible for these various pop-ups don't talk to each other. And there's no context mm between the two. So <laughs> let me give you an example. You go to my website and download the tool. There's a pop-up saying, do you want to allow Objective-C to download things? Okay, allow. You click allow. You open that, it says, this is from the internet. Even though it's signed, it's notarized, you have to click allow. Okay, then the installer needs extra privileges because it's installing a system extension, which Apple says has to be running with higher privileges. So you gotta enter your password, okay. Now it says, by the way, this is going to install a system extension. You have to approve that. So you approve that. Then it says, the system extension is going to be able to access network traffic because it's monitoring that. So you have to click approve. So you end up having to click through six different pop-ups oh, to geez. install this one thing. And when I went back and played the Vista commercial, the, the Vista guy only had to click to five. So I was like, Apple, come on. Like, not only, like, have you come what you swore not to like and right. so besides just being uh, annoying to the users this is also problematic for people writing security tools because we have to write code to handle all these scenarios and if the user hits cancel we then have to handle that explain why so it's very daunting and you know for example to write a network extension there is a ton of hoops you have to jump through you have to pay apple for a developer uh, certificate 99 dollars a year that's pretty standard uh, you have to get it notarized, which means Apple scanning it. You have to get certain entitlements, which Apple will only give to you after they verify who you are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, it's really silly, in my opinion, that the user has to click through like six different prompts. Like yeah. maybe show them one that says, hey, it does A, B, C, and D. Right. And it's a challenging thing. I mean, to balance privacy and usability, as you mentioned, is very difficult to do. And I don't know what the answer is. But I like you kind of use the pendulum analogy saying, hey, we've definitely swung too far because it is getting out of control. And the problem, besides just being annoying, is everyone's just going to click yes on everything. Right. And yeah. this is, I think, a proven thing where like dialogue fatigue, fatigue yeah. yeah, actually leads to less security. So but what really bothers me is like Apple, like you were like our savior in terms of like having a great usable experience and balancing user and security. And it's like you've lost your way on this. Yeah. Like like breaks my heart. And I just think if the teams talk together, and this is what I've heard a lot at Apple, there's like the teams have so much autonomy, which can be good. But then, you know, when they add this feature, okay, when a network extension like is going to access the network, like we need to pop up. Yeah, that makes sense. Unless the user has already approved five different things, maybe you don't need to show that. But if you're not communicating back and forth. So it's something where I think hopefully we'll start swinging back because, man, it's like the Mac OS experience is starting to suck. And like, yeah. 
Apple, yep. come on. Like, this is what you were good at. And so, right. yeah, frustrating. Not ideal. Well, there's a, there's a huge debate with iOS right now. And it, actually, Europe seems to be pushing Apple to be uh, opening them to third-party app stores. Because on the phone right now, it's, it's the Apple App Store or nothing. But because the Mac maybe goes back further and it's got the legacy support for that, you can, like your own apps, you, you know, you could download yep. them outside the Mac App Store. But one of the things I'm curious about, if you know, this has actually came up in a previous interview and we didn't really run this to ground. So you've got the Mac App Store. So you're you're paying, hopefully, for Apple to, as you said, vet these things and keep track of these yep. things. And sometimes they go bad. Like they start out good and then maybe they maybe get sold to somebody else. And as the, the new developer takes over and they start putting stuff in there that doesn't meet with the terms of service or maybe actually gets really bad. And so Apple has the ability to remove it from the App Store, yep. that, which is great. But what I want to know is if I've already installed this app and it gets removed from the App Store for whatever reason, because Apple thinks it's bad. Do I even get notified? Does it remove it? From, you know, what happens for the people that already have that app installed? No, and this is great you touched on this, because the Mac App Store was kind of sold to us as this like panacea for, well, all the things, but <laughs> right. for security in the sense that it's this curated, vetted place where users can trust the software. And, you know, and they kind of said, oh, iOS, this works really well. And I kind of have a problem with that model in the first place. And I'm going to caveat everything's a package deal. Let's look at iOS for, for, for a second. The fact that you can only get apps from the iOS app store, I think, does mean that there's less crap that gets installed on users' phones. Hmm. That having been said, let's look at countries that aren't stoked about VPNs. For example, China. Yeah. Now, the Chinese government can go to Apple and basically says no VPNs in the, the app store in Chinese mainland. Well, Apple, because it has positioned itself as the gatekeeper, the arbiter of what can be run or not, they have a very difficult decision. Do they acquiesce to the demands of the Chinese government or not? And because at the end of the day, Apple's a corporation beholden to their shareholders, stock price, money is important. They're gonna agree with the Chinese yeah. government, yeah. which part of my French, like that's kind of messed up, but they've kind of pigeonholed themselves. Whereas if you could sideload apps on iOS. Well, Chinese users could just go and download VPNs from right. other stores. Now, right. granted, I will caveat that opens up a ton of worms and there would be shady apps exploiting that. But, you know, it would give Chinese op users maybe the option to have uh, VPNs on their iPhones, which I think, you know, that's a valid, valid trade-off. I really just don't like Apple being this gatekeeper, this arbiter, especially yeah. when foreign governments can come along and... Right. exploit that for their own benefit. Back to the Mac App Store. So unfortunately, the, the promise is like crash and burn. First, it is full of scammy apps. And there's some mm. great researchers on Twitter who are continually pointing this out. And Apple does eventually remove them, but like very slowly. And a lot of the the apps, it's for example, like this happened with ChatGPD, like there was all these clones and knockoffs that would like right. steal your contact information or whatever. Yeah. Like, how hard is it to like programmatically say this is clearly a fraud? <laughs> like this is a chat GPG app, not from OpenAI. Like, okay, let's not allow that on the Mac App Store. And this is what the Mac App Store was literally designed to do. So the fact that it fails so spectacularly on that one task is uh, is problematic. Now, to answer your question more directly, what happens is my understanding is nothing. If something is removed from that from the Mac App Store, you know, it stays on your device, which you know, I don't necessarily think Apple should be deleting it, but they it'd be nice be if there was an, yeah. there would be a notification. Here's a great example of I think where Google, who we wouldn't say is a necessarily the most user friendly company all the time, 
I think did it right. So there was a case that I was involved in where there was an app that was developed by the Emirati government. It was called Tutok, not to be confused with TikTok. And what mm. the Emirati government did was like evil genius. They basically banned all like uh, messaging, Skype, video chat apps. And then one popped up one day that mm. was free and magically worked really well. And that's kind of suspicious. What happened was the New York Times got tipped off by the uh, U.S. intelligence community because the app became too popular. Basically, all the Emiratis were using it because now they could video chat and text. And the problem was they were starting to get their American colleagues, relatives to download this app, which the U.S. government intelligence agency figured out was a surveillance app, essentially. And, you know, once Americans started using it, that was like cross the line. So the intelligence community reached out to New York Times. New York Times reached out to me. I did the analysis of the app. And the interesting thing, the app wasn't exploiting anything per se, but, you know, it would like upload your entire address book and all its communications would go through these like backend servers that were clearly controlled by uh, adversaries. Now, the thing was this app, and it was an iOS app, uh, existed on the iOS store and on the Android Play Store, whatever. And so, again, we talked about this earlier when things are... I think the like term is like um, it's like when you go to Subway and you buy like a healthy sandwich and you're like, well, I can also get a cookie, right? And so there's a term, <laughs> it's like a health halo or something where mm. you know when you're in the mindset that a this is secure, this is healthy, you then make decisions that maybe are problematic. Mm. So same with this. If the app's mm-hmm. in the app store, you'd be like, okay, well, yeah, it's kind of weird that this free app works really well in you know in Dubai when all the others are blocked, but it's in the app store, so Apple has 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 vetted mm. it. So anyways, we came out with this report. Apple and Google both pulled it from the uh, App Store. And then Google actually sent a message to all the users who had installed this app saying, hey, this app has actually been uh, attributed to government and surveillance and, you know, seeing who you're chatting with and reading your traffic. Awesome. What did Apple do? Nothing. And I think if I have one complaint with Apple is when things go wrong, they really like to sweep it under the rug. Mm. They don't like to say, hey, this is a great learning experience we messed up. And in this case, I wouldn't have even blamed them because the app wasn't doing anything wrong per se when you looked at it. What was wrong was like who was behind it and yeah. like how the data was being routed through other servers. But, you know, I don't think that's up to Apple to figure out, mm-hmm. you know. And so if Apple said, hey, you know, when we got more information that the government, Emirati government was behind this, we pulled the app, you know, these are what we've done in the first place. But, you know, I think that would have been a great uh, learning experience. And then maybe if they alerted the user saying, hey, you should probably uninstall this app and and here's why, great, win-win. Like, no hard feelings, great learning experience. But Apple really doesn't like doing that. Um, You know, I think at the end of the day, their image is super important to them. And, you know, this. if I have one critique, it's it's really this. Uh, and, And that is, you know, for example, Apple doesn't like saying that when the Chinese government comes knocking, they basically say, yeah, sure, no, yeah. no VPNs. Or when this app gets uh, pulled from the app store, they don't reach out and say, hey, just like, you know, like, there's a problem here. Where in this case, like, Google did that. I was like, wow, kudos yeah. to Google, like Apple, like what? Mm. And so not to pick on Apple too much, but I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think it generally comes down to the hubris of Apple where, you know, they have this image to maintain and they generally, you know, that's that's the most important thing to them. And yeah. when there's missteps and everyone's going to make mistakes, instead of taking the more emotionally mature approach and saying, hey, we messed up. Or in the case with Tutok, like it wasn't even their fault. It was very, very difficult. I mean, the only reason 
we knew it was problematic is because the U.S. government intelligence community tipped us off. So, like, how was Apple supposed to know this app was bad? But even still, they, they didn't take it as an opportunity to warn the users. And, you know, Apple claims they care about their users, but often their actions don't reflect that. So that, to me, is a little problematic. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's about right. Notifications, I think, would be the way to go. I mean, it, I don't like anybody... <laughs> He yeah, does something exactly. without my knowledge. Like like back when they had the YouTube iPod thing album. where they bought, Yeah, exactly. When they put the YouTube oh over without asking, like, you can't do that. Rude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one instance where they uninstalled a piece of software. It was a vulnerable Zoom component that mm. they deemed uh, had a security issue. And they used their malware re- removal tool to remove it, which from a security point of view – probably makes sense but again like the fact that apple can reach out at any time and remove anything from your computer i'll just leave that be i didn't know that was i didn't know that was possible i wasn't aware of that all right all right so we're we're, we're kind of winding up let's do a little bit of a lightning round here so uh real quick tell me what you think about apple's lockdown mode and their advanced data protection those are new features that they recently had i love this early we talked about defense in depth i think this is an example of apple doing the right thing and saying hey look for certain users perhaps if you think you're you know, being targeted by a nation state, we've now added this feature, for example, lockdown mode that basically reduces a lot of the attack surfaces. Yeah. It's not going to be perfect, and we should never think it's perfect, but it's another layer we can add to uh, our, def- our defense posture, and I'm a huge fan of that. So, you know, I, I think that's just kind of a, you know, I was picking on Apple, and I will pick on Apple, but I think in this case, it's saying like, hey, People's iPhones are getting hacked by zero-click vulnerabilities. Their Macs are getting hacked by nation-state adversaries. So what we can do is we can add these additional layers of security that will impact usability. But if users feel like they are targeted and want that, they can enable that. So that to me is the best-case scenario where it's optional, but it does provide an additional layer of security. And, you know, some of the vulnerabilities that have come out recently that were – uh, detected as being used by nation states would have been thwarted by uh, lockdown mode. Not all right. of them, but some. And so I think, you know, it's nothing but a, a great idea that Apple will continue to iterate on and improve. So huge fan of it. Yeah. So, okay. And this is another question I get all the time. How do I know if I'm infected? Like people, you know, some people get really paranoid about like, oh, like, like my thing seems to be running slower. I don't think it ever did that before. Did it do that before? <laughs> so how, how do you know you're infected? And if, and if you then think you are infected, what do you do? Yeah, this is a great question because this is really more of a psychological question generally. Mm. So the first thing is if you have an iPhone, there's essentially no way to know, which is something you basically just have to come to peace with. And this is largely because of how the iPhone is designed, right? Like Apple doesn't allow essentially any security tools, which means you can't even run a process list to see what's running. Now, this is great for 99% of the population and towards 99% of hackers. The problem is advanced adversaries develop these zero-click mm-hmm. capabilities. And once they are able to infect an iPhone, they are actually able to leverage the security of the device for their own benefit. Right. It's essentially a black box, which means once you're in, there's nowhere to figure that out. And a great recent example involves Kaspersky, a Russian antivirus company. They were targeted by an advanced adversary who hacked into their iPhones and for almost five years remained undetected. Kaspersky eventually detected it because they noticed some anomalous network traffic. Now, this is Kaspersky. They are arguably the best antivirus company in the world. I mean, they're just brilliant. They do tons of research. You know, there's some weird stuff with Russia involved, so we're not going to go there. But purely from a technical point of view, like they're 
top tier. And the fact that they were unable to detect this for four years, <laughs> the rest of us, like, yeah. we don't even have a hope. Right. What chance the good we thing have, right? is, unless you're being targeted by, you know, a three-letter spy agency, your iPhone is secure. You really don't have to worry about that. If you are being targeted by, you know, a spy agency or some advanced nation state government, I would argue you, you have bigger problems. By the now, way, that's the dragon of my analogy that in the book is like, don't bother trying to dragon proof your castle. It's not worth the effort. You can't do it. I love that because that goes exactly into what we're, we're talking about right now. The thing is though, Macs get hacked easier, right? They're more open. They're not yeah. as locked down, which iOS, which is a great thing, but that means it's easier for adversaries, hackers to, to slip in. Generally speaking though, if someone hacks your computer, you're not going to see visual indicators of that. If your computer's running slow or the mouse kind of moved or like something like that's buggy software. That's not indicative <laughs> of a hacker because once an adversary gets into your computer, the last thing they want is to be detected. So what they're going right. to do is ensure that there's no observable thing. Mm. The other thing, and I deal with this a lot, people are like, yeah, but look at this log message and look at this mm. file. 999 of a thousand times, that's just some part of Apple's undocumented system. And if you Google that, you see other people saying, what is this file? What is this right. entry in my keychain? And someone describes this. And I don't blame users if they see weird things because very rarely, occasionally it, it, it is malware, but more often than, than not, it's, it's not. So if you think you're infected, because Macs do get infected, um, you know, I would recommend you know, running an antivirus scan, you know, seeing if it pops up, if you are seeing things like pop-ups and hijacked search pages, adware, that's really common. Mm -hmm. That's probably the one malware family that has very visible, observable side effects. Right. If you think there you are infected, there is a very easy solution that will nuke, you know, 99.99999% of all malware out there. And that is simply reinstall macOS. So you mm -hmm. can reboot into recovery mode, reinstall uh, macOS. This won't delete any of your uh, your files, but will basically clean out anything that that might be there okay um and so that's a, a great solution to that again it might not be foolproof my understanding is it should um, be a step in the right direction but really the problem is it's kind of like being in a relationship and you think your partner's cheating on you mm -hmm. and if you like look in their wallet and you don't find anything that never gives you peace i would imagine <laughs> you're never like oh yeah you're just like right. he or she is hiding it for me so right. the same unfortunately if you think your computer is hacked if you go down this rabbit hole it's like it's it can it can it can you know well it can turn into a rabbit hole um and so but like i said there's some good things you can do run an av scan reinstall mac os and change your passwords and you're you're probably good to go all right so what do you do when you get a when you get that fresh mac and you take it out of the box and the beautiful mac packaging and you fire that baby up the first time what are the, what are the first things you do to harden your mac or you know just kind of generally what settings do you tweak if anything on a brand new mac yeah, this is a great question, too, because we just talked about getting hacked, and it turns out that there's some basic things you can do that really make you, uh, I would say, more secure than the majority of the population. And hackers are super opportunistic, and so yeah. if you are more difficult to hack, they're just going to go on to the next. I'm all about analogies, and a great one here is like a thief coming into a neighborhood who's looking to steal, I don't know, jewelry, TVs, whatever um, right. thieves steal. If the first house has a barking watchdog, they're just going to go to the next house. If right. the next house has camera systems and alarm, they're going to skip that one and go to the third house. They're basically going to look for the easiest targets. Hackers, exactly the same. And so one of the first things I do is make sure that the operating system is fully updated. And this is probably the best thing you can do because 
what happens is when Apple pushes out uh, a patch or a new version of macOS, one, they patch all the security vulnerabilities that have been reported or have been discovered being exploited, but also they a lot of times add in additional baked-in security mechanisms. So for things like, you know, now we have notarization checks that didn't exist on older versions of, of macOS. Um, on some recent versions of macOS 2, there's additional checks on uh, the application. Every time it's run, it's checked to make sure that the code signing certificate is still valid. That's a new feature, mm-hmm. a new security feature. So always run the latest version of macOS or iOS and that alone ensures that you are way more of a difficult target to hack. And the majority of malware and hacks and intrusion attempts will fail just because of that. Um, so that's the first thing I do. So I assume the thing that goes along with that is to turn on automatic updates for everything. Yeah, exactly. Especially for the operating system. You know, for third-party software, you know, it's probably a good idea. But, you know, I like to see what they fix and, you know, what features they've added. But, yeah, for the operating system, it's almost a no-brainer. And some people are like, well, I want to hold off to make sure it doesn't crash my system. But Apple's done a pretty good job testing. And so I think the security cost outweighs anything else um, and and really just the the best thing you can do. So turn on auto updates. uh, Make sure full disk encryption is enabled, which I believe it is now uh, by default. Make sure the built-in firewall is installed. Um, I like that. And then install some of your favorite third-party security tools. I think in this day and age, with the attention that macOS is getting from ransomware gangs, from nation-state adversaries, from opportunistic fi- uh, financially motivated hackers, really makes sense. Um, so I secure, I install my own security tools. Sure. <laughs> Block, Block and Lulu are kind of my two go-to ones. You know, but if you have a favorite antivirus product, that's a great idea as well. You know, you do that and then you combine that with using like a password manager and, you know, securing your accounts with two-factor authentication, like you're good. Like almost certainly you won't be hacked and, you know, never say never, but you have just reduced the likelihood of that by such a large percentage. That should give you some peace, reduce some anxiety and allow you to kind of just, you know, use your computer to do fun things. All right. So before we go, a couple more questions real quick. Uh, Looking ahead, uh, what worries you most about computer security? Like maybe what's coming down the pike, some changes that you might see that are are troubling, maybe that we're not prepared for. And maybe what gives you hope? Do you see some other great security? You know, you might be more in tune with the things that Apple is putting in their their upcoming OSs or rumored to be putting their OSs as far as security features. What's, uh, What's kind of the future look like for security? Great question. The first thing is I'm not scared of AI at all. <laughs> like you hear these okay, naysayers that's like yep. AI can write malware now. And I'm like, I mean, that's just silly. I mean, <laughs> you can tell chat GPT to write a program that encrypts files, but like, like that's also readily available on the internet. And right. you know, writing malware is never the hard part. It's like, how do you get it to the remote system? And so AI is great, but I don't think that's something we should be fearful in terms mm-hmm. of uh, it, you know, going to like devastate security or something. Right. That said, in terms of trends and what does worry me, I think it's just really that, and we've touched on this a few times, is the, as Macs become more popular, uh, and iPhones too, hackers and adversaries just pay more attention, which means there's more threats. Mm. Hackers are incredibly opportunistic and incredibly wily, which means, and we've seen this already, they're able to often find ways around Apple's built-in security mechanisms. So at the end of each year, I publish a report about the new malware, the new Mac malware of the year. And I believe it was a year or two ago, almost 50% of the new samples had actually existed on other platforms where Mm. the malware authors simply ported over or rewrote their existing Windows or Linux malware to now work on macOS, which makes tons of sense because... A lot of times they already have the back-end infrastructure set up. They have the protocol set up. 
And what they're doing is essentially just saying, oh, look, let me rebuild this for Mac OS. And now I have all these new targets, right, uh, right. potentially new targets. We also see the sophistication of the exploits being used, the sophistication of the malware is just rapidly increasing. I mean, even just five years ago, most Mac malware was like laughably bad. It was basically like mm. Windows malware authors like trying to write Mac software. It was just like, <laughs> you know, we picked on companies trying to port their Windows AV products to, to, to Mac and doing a horrible job. Well, we saw the same thing with malware authors. And you're like, wow, this malware sucks. Now, though, it's like really more sophisticated. It shows, you know, a deep understanding of Mac OS internals and Mac Apple's security posture and how to sidestep that. And so to me, that's unsurprising. It's a natural evolution and not something I would say I worry about, but just something to be aware of. The, the adversaries are becoming a lot, a lot better. Um, and so just the, the fact that you have a Mac or an iPhone shouldn't doesn't mean I'm not going to get hacked. So I would say that was kind of the, the main concern is just the sophistication and the increased intention, attention by a lot of very s- smart hackers and offensive-minded cyber hackers, espionage, whoever, now paying more attention to, uh, to, to Mac OS and, and also iOS. And I kind of put those into the same. And I mean, I think especially in terms of iOS, like it's our digital soul. It has everything about no it. So it's like, well, yeah, this is why governments are trying to hack it. And so you're yeah. kind of like, ah. And so it doesn't worry me, but it's kind of something to be aware of. All right, man. Right, last question before we go. What's what's next for you? You said you got the book coming out next year. You've got, I guess, Objective-C7 next year. When, when is that? Where is that going to be? What else is, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, I'm stoked we're wrapping this up by looking to the future because I'm super excited about all the new things. So working on wrapping up uh, volume two of The Art of Mac Malware, focusing on detection. Uh, I think that'd be a really interesting read and really dives into you know, everything we talked about today, which is great. Uh, OBTS 7 is going to be back in Hawaii in fall of 2024. Uh, we are soliciting hotels, finding the best contract. But yeah, super stoked that it's back in uh, Hawaii and, and a lot of people are really looking forward to that. We also, you know, freely live stream it, record all the talks, post all the slides. So even if people can't make it, oh, that's great. Um, you know, we really uh, try to make all the material uh, available. And then the last thing I'm really excited about is we've recently launched a program that we've dubbed Objective We. Really going with the objective, you know, like <laughs> rhymes with C words. Yeah. And this is, you know, we're really trying to encourage diversity in the tech space, especially in the in the Apple security space. You know, we all know the tech space is unfortunately not the most diverse. Yeah. Yeah. And so as this nonprofit working a lot with the community, we have a ton of opportunities for doing really cool stuff. So we're doing things like student scholarships for high school students here on Maui. And for example, Maui is a very expensive place to live. But the idea is if students are going off and getting technology-related careers or degrees, that opens up a lot of opportunities, not only for remote jobs, for them to get a remote job, but a remote job that actually pays really well. And this is really the only reason I was able to move back to Hawaii, Mm -hmm. to undergrad here, always wanted to come back. I was working for a tech company that was paying a nice tech salary and said, hey, you can do this remotely. And I was like, oh, amazing. Because Maui really doesn't have any high-tech jobs per se. It's mostly tourism and it's incredibly expensive. So if we can empower and motivate kids to instead get, you know, go to college, get that four-year degree, and then, you know, hopefully get that that job with a company doing, uh, that has remote options, they can live affordably here. So that's something we're really uh, excited about. We work with the local high schools, talk to them, um, get students excited about that. 
Similar to that is the student scholarship program I mentioned at the uh, at the start when we talked about the conference. Again, this aligns with our Objective We program, where we basically bring uh, students, really focus on a lot of diversity students, to the conference to do the trainings, hear the talks, meet meet the companies. And then the last thing, which I'm super excited about, is we're going to be launching what we're referring to as Objective for the Week, which are like mini OBTS conferences in cities around the world. We haven't really picked all the cities yet. It's kind of um, you know a, 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 something we're going to really start trial essentially in in 2024. So is it kind of like B sides versus DefCon kind of thing? Exactly, in the sense that we're going to organize like a you know a one or two day event in a city where there's a lot of students, and so it's super accessible, super localized. And then day one will be free trainings, maybe like how to begin Mac malware analysis. Uh, and then day two will be talks that are yes technical, but maybe not as deeply technical as at OBTS. And then also maybe focusing on like you know writing resumes for cybersecurity jobs, kind of more practical, maybe panel oh, yeah. discussions. Again, really to empower students and uh, diverse candidates. And in some senses, it's almost like a precursor to OBTS. OBTS is amazing, but, you know, it's like a week in Hawaii. Not everyone can, like, take off that time, can afford that. It's also, like, yeah. super technical, which is awesome, but maybe not as beginner-friendly. So these right. Objective for the AWE events, we're really going to uh, lean into and really make them more student-friendly and focused. So super excited about that. We're going to be, you know, we have these great, Companies who really support the nonprofit, Jamf, Kanji, Mazel, Palo Alto Networks, uh, just to name a few. And what we're doing is we're trying to uh, see if we can connect with them and, you know, maybe do it near where they're located as well. And so, you know, we're not just looking in the U.S. One of our uh, supporters is a company called MacPaw, and they're in Ukraine. And I was like, let's do an event in Kiev. Like... You know, maybe once the war is done, but like I'm sure there's a ton of <laughs> right. students there who, oh, yeah. if given the opportunity, could do amazing things and really, you know, join, swell our ranks of defenders. Because as we mentioned, the adversaries are becoming ever more sophisticated and we really need to, uh, you know, train the next generation. And also just the opportunities in tech, in cybersecurity are uh, incredible super fun work, pays really well, tons of options for remote stuff. Like when I talk to kids, I'm like, like, take a close look at this. If there's something you think about, like, dive in because, you know, I'm biased, but I think it's an incredible career that, you know, people should definitely consider. Well, and there's a lot, a lot of openings in security. And there are begging. There are companies just begging for people We're to get inside of server security. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if we have you have an opportunity at all. to bring in. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also, let me put my bid in right now for holding one of those at the Triangle area. That'd be fantastic doing it here in North Carolina. I'd go to that in a heartbeat. I love it. Yeah. We get like Cisco to sponsor. Yeah, I got some connections there. I'll hook you up. All right, we'll all right, chat, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Patrick, that was fantastic. Thanks for coming back on the show, and we'll definitely have to back, have you back sooner next time. Thank you, Kerry. I really appreciate you making the time, inviting me back. Honored, stoked to be back and be able to talk nerdy about things I'm clearly passionate about, but things I think that are really important for everyone to hear. Thanks, man. Take care. It's great having Patrick back on the show. We'll have to not wait quite so long in between interviews this time. I will remind you that we recently interviewed Danny Rogers and Rocky Cole from iVerify, who makes a very handy and very reasonably priced security app for iOS devices called iVerify. So if this episode has made you think about uh, wanting to protect your iDevices, 
that is something you definitely should look into. And if you want to go back to episode 350, uh, you can listen to that interview. And Patrick mentioned a couple of his tools. I've put links in the show notes to those. If you just go to his objective-see.org website, you will see them there. I have installed Lulu myself. I've used BlockBlock, though I don't currently have it installed. But those are great utilities. And he's got several more there that you might want to look at. And they're all free and open source. He also mentioned his book, The Art of Mac Malware, Volume 1. And you can buy that or you can download it for free by going to taomm.org and those are the initials of the art of mac malware you can find out more about his conference if you're interested in going if you if you're going to be in hawaii or you want to make the trip out there uh, you can find out about that and as he mentioned he's also doing some other ones around the world you can find all the links to all that stuff in the show notes i also put a link in the show notes to how to reinstall your mac os from the recovery mode that, that patrick was talking about so if that's something you're interested in uh, there's a link in the show notes for that too now, the patrons on Thursday are going to get a little bonus content from, from Patrick, and we talk a little bit about why Apple's automatic updates are a little less than automatic. And then we dig into a bug that Patrick found in the background task manager. And if you've ever seen the pop-up after you install something, say, you know, from your Mac OS, it says background items added, and you wonder what the heck that was about. We actually kind of dig into that. So anyway, the patrons will be getting that as usual uh, on Thursday in your bonus patron podcast. I just got done interviewing Jody and Justin Daniels, a great husband and wife team on security and privacy. That was an interesting interview. Uh, and I've got other ones already pre-recorded and ready to go from Kate Black on medical privacy and Jen Caltrader from uh, Mozilla on their car privacy report. And a really interesting interview with Joseph and Jason from 404 Media. All these things are in the bag and will be coming out in the next uh, couple months. So lots of great stuff coming your way. If you have not already, go ahead and subscribe, and then you won't miss any of that. All right, that's going to do it this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Drawbridge down.